Good morning, everybody. Shane Willard here. I'm so excited. I get to open the Bible today for us. And I hope this comes into your home as a real blessing to you. I hope Jesus gets bigger. I hope the cross works better. I hope the resurrection is central. I hope scriptures get bigger, not smaller. Um, anytime you open a Bible passage, you want to ask at least two questions. One, what happened? And then two, and most importantly, what's happening in me right now because of what happened? And so in this season of, of the Christian calendar, this is a season where we take a second and look at the part of faith that isn't actually that nice to look at, that Christianity is not a system by which we say that faith is enough confidence to get out of something, nor do we say faith is certainty, and we certainly don't say that faith is the absence of doubt. That's not how faith is formed in the Christian faith. This is a season where we look at the struggle, that we look at the moment in faith that also includes the cry of the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the day Jesus was crucified, what you see when you read the story is you see profound doubts, you see profound resistance, you also see profound trust. And so what I want to do is I want to look at one man's um, examination of that and how he was applying it to his life. Uh, the, the passage I'm going to read is from Philippians chapter 2, which let me explain that. Philippians chapter 2 is written by a guy named Paul um, while he was in jail and being tortured under the authority of a man named Nero. This was a bad, bad situation. Paul is in prison because he won't come off the idea that Jesus is Lord when the Roman Empire required you to proclaim Caesar is Lord. So, so like remember when, when Paul wrote a passage to Romans and he says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you'll, you'll be saved. Remember, he only wrote that to Romans where people lived in Rome and they were required by government regulations to do the propagation of the imperial cult. The idea was is that we exist to evangelize the idea that Caesar is Lord, that Caesar is God in flesh. And so for Paul to write that, this is like saying, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. If you're willing to believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, there is salvation for you. This wasn't just some sort of ritual we're meant to do to go to heaven. This was a profound resistance against the way of the world, proclaiming that there's a new narrative, the new narrative of Christ being Lord and not Caesar. That's the new narrative that brings the world to the best place. That's why later he says, no one can say Jesus is Lord, lest the Holy Spirit compel them to do so. And so this was the world Paul was living in. And he knows he's going to die because he is not going to come off the idea that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. So he's writing back to these churches that helped him in his time of need. And he, he sort of knows the tone of the writing is, is, this is my last will and testament. If I had one last thing to say to you, here it is. And so he starts talking about how the meaning of the cross and what happened on Good Friday what that meaning was for how we interact with our world. And, and, and here's what he says. He says, Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. The theological word for that is kenosis. He chose to empty himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So he makes a distinction between death and death on a cross. And he's also pointing out that the fullness of God incarnate, the ultimate expression of what God is like, is a God who chooses not to be God for the sake of other people. 
A God who chooses to empty himself. A God that doesn't sit high on a throne and watch us suffer. Rather, a God that engages the suffering. This has been the narrative of Scripture since the beginning. In Genesis 1, God did not withdraw from the disorder. He engaged the disorder to bring out a new order. He didn't withdraw from the chaos. He engaged the chaos in order to bring new creation. That what we find in Jesus Christ is the ultimate picture of what God is like. A God that does not withdraw from the broken world, but rather would rather engage it and suffer with it. A God that does not withdraw from, from the pain. He engages it in order to identify with it with human beings. A God that chooses to empty himself. In, in Hebrew, the word would be zimzum. Zimzum is anytime you choose to get smaller yourself so that someone else can be blessed. You choose to get smaller yourself so that someone else can be blessed. And the ultimate expression of God in bodily form, the, the risen Christ, is a God who chose to empty himself, to suffer, to struggle, to have profound doubts, to have resistance, to ask his father, let this cup pass from me. And the, these are the moments in our faith where we realize that the my God, my God, why have you forsaken me moment is just as part of the faith journey as the resurrection is. This is the part where we realize that the struggle is also a part of the exaltation. And you don't really get one without the other. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, whether that name is in heaven, on earth, or under the earth. That sounds like everybody. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, not Caesar, to the glory of God the Father. Now, there's, there's some things going on here that I think we need to point out. One, when Paul uses the word death, even death on a cross, this was something that was unspeakable. Uh, the cross was not spoken of. Um, it was considered a swear word because if you were hung on a cross, you were considered cursed by God. It would be like proclaiming that God was condemning something or God was damning something to an eternal curse that, that because Caesar was God in flesh, if you were put on a cross, then you were then condemned or cursed by Caesar. And so it was sort of a, a crass word. The, the word in Greek is staris. Um, the, the cross and crucifixion was never, was not even ever drawn until 100 years after the, the, the thing was banned for being too cruel. So in other words, there's no artistic rendering of a crucifixion from anyone who ever actually saw it. Um, pa Paul uses that word in this letter, and it would have been read publicly in this church. There, there would have been like a, oh, is he allowed to say, stars? oh, is, is he allowed to say that? That even death on a cross, Paul was using a word that was unspeakable. In, in Latin, the, the, the word is crux. It's, it's crux crucifixion. And here's what Paul's pointing out. That Jesus, the ultimate picture of what God is like, is a God who chooses to empty himself of his godness in order to identify with the suffering of others. And the obvious application is this, is to have this mind be in us as well. That the best way to live life is to empty ourselves, to be willing to get a little smaller ourselves for the sake of someone else experiencing blessing and joy, to not, in, to not shying away from the disorder, but to engage the disorder, not to judge it, but for the purpose of bringing a more beautiful order. That you don't disengage from the chaos, you engage the chaos, not to judge it, but to get in the middle of it and fix the broken picture in order to bring a new creation. And Paul says that, hey, hey, when you experience the crux, 
there's also a highly exalted thing. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Now, now the word he uses in Greek here is the word hyperipsosin, which is just such a cool word. It means to exalt highly. And so Paul's pointing out that there's at least two dimensions to our faith journey. One is the crux, the struggle, the pain, the doubt, the, the profound uncertainty. That uncertainty is not the enemy of faith, nor is it the opposite of faith. That doubt is not the enemy of faith. Sight is only going with what you can see. That, that actually there's a part of our faith journey that includes profound doubt, profound uncertainty, questions, some resistance. The, hey, if this cup can pass from me, please let it pass. There's this, there's this sort of divine um, narrative of negotiation. Hey, is there any other way? I'll do what you ask me to do, but is there any other way? So, so in our life, as, as we're sitting here and, and examining the scripture, I wonder if we could take a second and identify with Paul and identify with the risen Christ. That, that maybe this is a moment in our lives where we're having to own our own crux. We're having to own our own struggle. We're having to own our own suffering. We're having to admit that we have profound doubts about where is God in the middle of all this? That, that is there another way for this to be accomplished? Maybe, maybe we're more like Jesus and Paul than we think. Or maybe we could say another way. Maybe Jesus and Paul's journey of great faith looks remarkably like our journey of faith. That there was a crux, there was a starus, there was a cross, but there's also the exaltation. And the, the beauty of the Christian narrative is that the cross never gets the last word. See, in the first century, Caesar always had the last word. Live, die. Live, die. That was Caesar's word. God in flesh, Caesar is what they believed, that he always got the last word. Live, die. Live, die. That was your life. In Philippians, Paul is saying that Caesar thought he had the last word by crucifying Christ. But in reality, Christ gets the last word because he chose to empty himself and get smaller in order, in order to bless the whole world. And, and if Christ is simply relegated to a bullet point on a pamphlet that tells people what we believe, that faith is not a what word. Faith is a who do you trust word. And so if Jesus gets relegated to a bullet point on a pamphlet, that is juvenile and cheap. But rather Jesus and the cross and resurrection should not be something we believe in, but rather a fundamental way of seeing our whole world. And part of the fundamental way of seeing our whole world is seeing the value in the struggle, seeing the value in the suffering, seeing the value in the crux, seeing the value in the cross, seeing the value in the stars, that it's not the opposite of faith. And it's not in those points that you have the weakest faith. Oftentimes it's in those points that you have the most profound trust and strong faith. And it's tied to the exaltation. In Philippians, Paul is saying that Caesar thought he got the last word, but in reality, Jesus will. In other words, the name above all names. So let's, let's see what this means for our tomorrow. What does this mean for us when we wake up in, in the morning? Let, let's say this way. It might look like a crux, but exaltation is on the way. It, it might look like Friday, but resurrection Sunday is on the way. In the Christian worldview, the cross is always a part of the story, but it never gets the last word. It might look like unemployment, but business ownership is on the way. It might look like a divorce, but restored peace is on the way. It might look like abuse and despair, but your story isn't over. The crux and Caesar never get the last word. It might look like death, 
But death doesn't get the last word because anything that belongs to death doesn't belong because resurrection gets the last word. In other words, as Christians, we don't despair at the crux because we know that the crux always brings the hyperipsison. The struggle always brings the exaltation. Let's, let's say it a couple different ways. That life is given meaning by death. That life is given meaning by death. What gives life meaning is that there's such a thing as death. What gives 10 a value is that there's such a thing as zero. Or let's say it even more practically, that desire is given meaning by the object to cause. That meaning in life is a function of the interpretation of the tension between object desire and object cause. Let me explain. Object desire is that which you want. Object cause is the struggle to get that what you want. So, so to be very elemental with it, if you're three and you want to eat all the chocolates, you say, I want all the chocolates. And you, you, the, the chocolates are your object desire. Your mom says you can't have all the chocolates. Your mom would be the object cause. She's the struggle you have to get through to get to the chocolates. Or let's be more adult with it. Let's say you want a new truck. And so you say, I'd love that new truck. Well, that new truck is your object desire. The, the, the cost of the truck is your object cause. All the sacrifices you have to make and, and, and the plans and the strategy in order to get that new truck, that, that is now your object cause. And when you finally get the truck, the meaningfulness of that truck is not in actually sitting in the truck. It's all the memories of the struggle you had to go through to get to, to, get to what you wanted. That all meaning in life is interpreted through the object cause, not simply getting what we want all the time. That at the end of the day, when the whole story is told, the meaning of what we have is actually interpreted through the struggle of how we got what we got. Same is true relationally. The best marriage of anybody listening to this, they're not the people going, yep, been together 35 years, know everything about them, nothing else to learn. No, the best marriages are like, we've been together 35 years, I still don't have a flipping clue, but I'm loving every minute of it. It's that it's that. This is why the generation turning 19 years old today has more money in the bank than the previous four generations before it combined had in the bank at 19 years old. They have that. They have all the stuff in the world. They, they actually think about taking a year off to walk around Europe and, 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 and look at old buildings and drink coffee, right? Like if you're, if you're listening to this right now and you're over the age of 40, I'm 44, could you imagine telling your father, that you were going to take a year off to go find yourself? Your, your father would have said, well, well, look, there you are. Now go to work, get a job. That's what would have happened. So what's happening is, is that the 19-year-olds today have more stuff than the previous four generations before it combined. But they have more depression as well. Why? Because we have removed all of the struggle to get what we want. So, somewhere walking around here would be an 8-year-old with an $800 phone. And what did they do to earn it? Nothing. Nothing. So you can't help but wonder why they interpret their life as less meaningful if you remove all the struggle to get what you want. That, that desire is actually given meaning by the object cause, not in getting what you want. So, so let's, let's ask ourselves a few questions here, um, because what happened is important. What's happening in me right now because of what happened is also important. And I want to ask you a question for anybody that, that's watching this. I want you to stop. I want you to take a deep breath. And I want you to ask the question, how can I identify with Christ in this story? How can I identify with Paul in this story? How can I identify with how Paul is interpreting Christ to our world in this story? How, how can I do that? And so th there's, a, there's a few questions we can ask to, to, to get there. Because great sermons aren't meant to be agreed with, nor disagreed with. 
They're meant to be wrestled with. So, so let's wrestle for a second. What is your crux? What's your cross to bear? Can, can we stop for a second and name it? We, we, we can name it. Maybe, maybe in this situation the world is in, maybe, maybe you own a business that depends on tourism. Maybe uh, you're worried about losing your job. Maybe you're one of those at-risk people and you're actually worried about your health. Uh, maybe it's the daughter that's 26 years old and off the rails. Maybe, maybe it's the son that's 31 years old and off the rails. Whatever it is, I want to tell you that it's not your lack of faith that that's happening. It's not. It's not like if you had more faith, it would change. That great faith isn't the absence of the crux. That otherwise, Jesus had almost no faith. And Paul had a faith problem. When in actuality, Jesus and Paul were champions of faith. Like, what is your cross to bear? Let's say this way. What are we tempted to believe gets the last word? Are we tempted to believe the crux gets the last word or the hyper ipsocent? And one of the things about this day, when we come together and we think about what Christ did for us, is, is, is we remember that the crux never gets the last word. And, and that's okay if it's just a bullet point on a pamphlet, but it's not as profound. But when the crux doesn't get the last word as a fundamental way of seeing our whole world, then it matters greatly. But let's say it this way. What is your story of exaltation through death? If you just take a second and think about a time in your life where you struggled and got through it. And actually, the getting through it was given more meaning because of the struggle. That this is just how the world works. Where has this happened before to you? Let's say it this way. Is there any place you feel alone in this? Is there any place that you're like, I'm the only one bearing the crux? And I think it's important in a community where we remind ourselves that we're better together. And we look around and we realize that there are lots of people in the same boat. Paul said it this way, that my light and momentary troubles. Well, hang on a second. You might be saying, there's nothing light about the thing I'm going through. Well, weight is relative. Paul was being tortured every day with no hope of surviving it. Um, if, if you look around, like, like it's obviously not good for, for me that things are where they are. But there are folks in a whole lot worse situation. And so things that are light, and Paul was willing to call his things light and momentary. Why? It wasn't because he had no doubt. It's because he understood that the way of seeing the world is that the crux never gets the last word. Let, let's say it this way. Is there any place we need to empty ourselves? And be like Christ? Is, is, is there any place that we need to stop pretending that there's nothing wrong and name the crux, knowing that the crux is a part of the story? That Good Friday is a part of the Easter story. Easter doesn't happen without the crucifixion. And so when we apply that to our world, let anyone who's struggling today know that the crux is just the part of the story, but it never, ever gets the last word. So may Jesus get bigger, the cross work better, the resurrection be central, and scriptures get bigger, not smaller. May we name our doubts, name our uncertainty. May we own the crux, knowing it's a beautiful part of the story because it never gets the last word. Because at the end of the day, what we want is the presence of God. And Jesus is the struggle to the presence of God. And so may we be the people that realize that Christianity is the one place that flips the script and says, actually, Jesus is the fullness of God, so that in Christ was everything you wanted all along. Christianity takes your object desire and your object cause and puts it into the same person. So may you, my brothers and sisters, know that all the meaning is found in the journey with the risen Christ.
the crux never gets the last word. And may you find infinite meaning in your journey with the risen Christ, the object calls, knowing he's actually what you wanted all along. Grace and peace, everybody.